0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of
1: iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Before we start today's episode proper, we have kind of a, I think, special thing coming up. It's unlikely at this point that we are going to do any touring this year. The We had some things on the calendar that had been scheduled that were, you know, one-off appearances in places. Those have been canceled. I think the only one that we uh, actually announced on the show was we were planning a July 5th show at the Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, that has been canceled. One of our favorite things about these appearances is getting to talk to people who listen to the show and answer questions about the show. So we were thinking, since we're not getting to do any kind of touring this year, um, that we would have a Q&A episode with with questions submitted by listeners. So, uh, we are going to be taking questions specifically for a Q&A episode up until June 12th. Um, and then we will record uh, an episode based on those questions uh, shortly after that and put it out as an episode of the show. So if you have questions for us about episodes that you've heard or about how we do the show or just random things that you're curious about, send them along. We're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Um, we, of course, will still be having questions for listener mail, ep- parts of the sh- episodes and stuff like that, but this week, a special thing that we'll put out as an episode of the show. Uh, so kind of excited about that. And now on to, to today's actual episode. Uh, I learned about these practice babies when researching the episode that we just had about home economics. And my response was like, what? (laughs) Practice babies? When I was in school, home ec classes had uh, parenting lessons that I'm putting in quotation marks that were about looking after a decorated egg or a sack of flour. Uh, At my school, this was not really about parenting, though. It was more about trying to discourage teen pregnancy by trying to simulate the stresses of having an infant using an egg with a face drawn on it. Um, Practice babies, though, were not eggs. They were living, breathing babies cared for by college seniors who were temporarily living in home ec practice houses. And in most cases, the babies came from orphanages or child welfare agencies, and then after their time as a practice baby was over, in most cases they were usually adopted, this whole idea tends to elicit pretty strong emotional reactions, especially from folks who are part of the adoption triad or people who have some experience with foster care or institutions for children. And the reasons why most of these babies were in institutions in the first place are definitely troubling. But... Uh, As with the incubator sideshows that we talked about on the show late last year, this is a case where something that seems just clearly unethical and bizarre by today's standards at the time was actually probably doing more help than harm.
0: And something we should note before we get started in talking about this, the history of adoption in North America includes a long-established pattern of placing Native American, First Nations, and other Indigenous children with white families as a tool for assimilation and cultural eradication. And it is possible that this happened in practice baby programs at some point. But that is also not really documented if that was part of this story, at least not in the material that we had access to.
1: Another important thing to note is that throughout the decades that we're talking about today, children of color were removed from their families and placed in institutions more often than white children were and there were definitely home economics programs that had practice houses at schools for black students as well as home ec programs that were racially integrated but overwhelmingly the documentation that's available to us is centered on programs where the babies and their caregivers were or appeared to be white so since we're going to be talking about some social issues related to adoption we would be remiss to not mention all this and kind of pretend that it didn't exist but Based on the information that we have, issues that are specific to indigenous communities and to transracial adoption seem to be outside the scope of today's episode.
0: The trend of practice babies as part of a home economics practicum ran alongside the development of home economics as a field. It was something we just covered in our earlier episode on the Bureau of Home Economics. But it also ran alongside changes to orphanages and to adoption and foster care in the United States.
1: Most of the nation's orphanages were built in the 19th century, as immigration and urbanization and other social and economic factors led to a huge increase in how many children were experiencing homelessness. Orphanages were attempts to move these children out of poor houses and prisons and other facilities that were really designed for adults. Many of these children did have at least one living parent, but for a variety of reasons, the family couldn't or didn't care for them at home. Poverty was also seen as a valid reason to remove children from their parents' custody. Conditions in 19th century
0: orphanages often were not much better than the prisons and workhouses that they were replacing. At best, they tended to offer very little in the way of care, education, entertainment, and stimulation. By the early 20th century, the United States was trying to move away from orphanages and to focus more on placing children with foster families. The nation also started to move away from using poverty alone as a reason to institutionalize children. But it wasn't until the 1940s that the number of children living in orphanages really started to drop.
1: In terms of changes to the foster care and adoption systems really for all of human history, there have been babies and children who were raised by somebody other than their birth parents. So fostering and adoption have always been part of the human experience. But in terms of formal laws and processes, these didn't really start to develop in the United States until the middle of the 19th century. The first modern adoption law in the United States was passed in Massachusetts in 1851, Other states followed, with the details of these laws really varying from state to state. Research into outcomes for
0: children who had been fostered or adopted didn't really start until after the first practice baby programs were established. The first major outcome study, titled How Foster Children Turn Out, was published in 1924. And it wasn't really until the 1960s that people started doing major research into connections between adoption and foster care and mental and emotional health. And by the time that work was being done, the last practice baby programs were already ending.
1: There was some research into how being a practice baby affected children's emotional and mental health and development. And we'll talk about the specifics of that research later on in the show. But especially in the later years of these programs, those kinds of studies became a lot harder to carry out, in part because of an increasing focus on keeping adoption records completely sealed, So a lot of practice baby programs didn't follow up on children's later lives, not because they just didn't care about the children's future well-being, but because that information about the families they had been placed with and where they were now, that was sealed. A lot
0: of this has to do with stigma. Especially within the white middle class, becoming pregnant out of wedlock was increasingly stigmatized from the 1930s through the 1950s and 60s. By the middle of the 20th century, if someone was pregnant and unmarried, they were likely to spend their last months of pregnancy somewhere out of sight, like in a maternity home or living with a relative from out of town, and then to be pressured, coerced, or outright forced into an adoption. Infertility was also stigmatized, so sealed adoption records, which were often inaccessible even to the children involved, allowed everyone involved in the whole process to keep all of this secret.
1: Of course, this is not at all how it's recommended to handle adoptions today. And this practice made it incredibly hard for people who were adopted as babies to get any information at all about their birth family or their health history. So the
0: babies who were part of these home economics programs generally had some kind of trauma in their backgrounds before becoming a practice baby. Maybe their parents had died and they were placed in an orphanage, or their parents were alive but just financially could not care for them. Many were born to unmarried parents who had little to no say in the adoption decision. In a 1959 article in the Journal of Home Economics, Catherine H. Reed, head of the Department of Family Life in the School of Home Economics at Oregon State College, stressed that babies should be placed in practice houses only if these kinds of circumstances
1: suggested that it would be in their best interests. College programs generally kept these babies' identities confidential. Students generally knew them by first names only although they often gave them temporary last names that varied from school to school. So for example babies at Cornell University were given the last name Domicon which was short for domestic economy. Eastern Illinois State Teachers College had two teaching houses and babies were uh, given last names for which house they were living in north or south. Since everything was confidential, students didn't generally meet the baby's families or follow up with them later on in their life. And we're going to talk
0: more about these practice houses and the babies in them after we first have a sponsor break.
1: Broadly speaking, home economics programs in the United States had two types of houses that were part of their instruction and practice – At the high school level, there were cottages where students could learn and practice, but where they did not generally live full time. These were everything from converted classroom spaces inside the school building, which had been made to look like little homes, or a standalone cottage that the school either owned or rented.
0: Colleges, on the other hand, had houses or apartments where upper-level students actually lived for a time. In the words of Dr. Louise Stanley, chief of the Bureau of Home Economics, quote, it is a house in which groups of students, organized as a family group, live for varying periods and apply their home economic training to the solution of the different housekeeping and homemaking problems as they arise. Stanley recommended that each state college have at least two practice houses, one outfitted like a home in a city or town, and the other replicating a house in a rural district.
1: The first documented practice houses were built in 1904. One was at Stout Institute in Wisconsin, and the other was at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. By 1920, there were 77 practice houses at colleges and universities around the United States, as well as some number of apartments that served the same purpose. Some schools bought or rented an existing property, and others had a practice house custom-built. For example, at the Hampton Institute, the funding for the house came from a gift for the school, and the structure itself was built by the school's trade school students.
0: The exact details of a student's time in a practice house could vary, but in general, it tended to involve six to eight seniors who usually lived in the house for six to ten weeks. Faculty, or sometimes graduate students, were on hand to instruct, supervise, and evaluate the students who were expected to cook, clean, serve meals, make budgets, and just generally manage the household. And in the words of Alba Bates, head of the School of Home Economics at North Dakota Agricultural College, quote, The big thing which we expect of the students and upon which we check them is their family relationships, such as the spirit of cooperation, helpfulness, generosity, kindness, and tolerance of the mistakes of others.
1: At some schools, these family relationships practiced in the house involved caring for a baby. This infant care was usually described as mothercraft, and mothercraft as a specialization was something that was introduced into American home economics programs following the establishment of the first mothercraft schools in England. That happened in 1914.
0: As had been the case with homemaking in general, the home economics movement considered child-rearing to be a worthy vocation that deserved study and refinement. Home economics approached homemaking through science, and mothercraft did the same with parenting. The mothercraft approach was very precise and regulated, with parents trying to establish set schedules for babies, with regular times for meals, baths, play, and sleep, and a diet that was carefully measured and managed.
1: By the late 19 teens, it was generally agreed that practical study of mothercraft was critical to a home economics degree. Raising children was a huge part of a typical homemaker's work, so home economics programs that had no hands on experience with childcare were just incomplete. This wasn't just about completeness for its own sake, though. A 1920 article in the Journal of Home Economics noted that under the Smith Hughes Act, vocational contact was required for people who were going to teach home economics. So if you were going to teach mothercraft, you had to have some vocational contact in childcare in your own education, in order to be able to do so.
0: Schools approached this hands-on component in several ways. Some had daycare centers and preschools on or near campus, which were staffed partly or entirely by home economics students. Others brought infants and older children from the community to campus for supervised play and workshops or they arranged for groups of students to observe and interact with babies and children in their own homes out in the community.
1: Uh, And some, as we've said, brought babies to live full-time in their practice houses. This same 1920 article outlined the first documented practice baby program in the United States, which took place at the University of Minnesota in 1918 and 1919. The university's two home management houses each had one child in residence in the spring and summer quarters. And although it became common to place children in practice houses as young as possible, in this pilot program, the babies were Russell, age 13 months, and Earl, age 21 months, both of whom had been living in baby homes since they were born.
0: In this program, each student in the practice houses acted as a so-called baby manager for one week. She was on duty with the baby's care between 6 and 8 each morning and 4.30 to 6 each night. The baby manager was generally in charge and was responsible for the baby's laundry and for keeping up with documentation, including recording all of the day's tasks and monitoring the baby's progress. The other three or four students rotated through the rest of the day's childcare tasks, depending on how their own class schedules and commitments worked out. There was one brief window each weekday when all of the students were in the same class, at which point a faculty member or a home ex student who wasn't living in the house would come and fill in.
1: Both Russell and Earl arrived at the university with some health issues that were associated with their time in the baby home. Both of them were described as listless and underweight with anemia and rickets. Uh, Russell also had eczema. But at the end of their two quarters in the practice houses, they had gained weight. They were showing fewer signs of nervousness and distress. Students reported that the babies became more active and more engaged. Their rickets had been resolved and Russell's eczema was also under control the, a doctor who examined both babies at the end of their time at the university noted, quote, the improvement in the condition of these children speaks highly for your cooperative motherhood.
0: Other programs followed from there pretty quickly. A 1920 survey found that of the 77 practice houses operating in the U.S., 16 had a child in residence. By the time these programs were phased out, about 50 colleges had brought babies into their practice houses. Although this episode and our earlier one on the Department of Home Economics have focused on the United States, there were practice houses with practice babies elsewhere as well. For example, the University of Manitoba had 33 practice babies in its home economics houses between the years 1930 and 1950.
1: The details of exactly how these programs worked varied from school to school. For example, by the mid-1950s, Iowa State College had six practice houses for home economics students. Babies stayed in one of the houses for a quarter, and each group of eight students lived in the practice house for half of a quarter. Each student had primary care of the baby for about four to five consecutive days. So by the end of each quarter, each baby had been cared for by 16 women in sequence.
0: From the beginning, there was some debate within the home economics field about whether this was an effective way to teach mothercraft and whether having so many caregivers could harm the babies in some way. But in the 1950s, public opinion started to shift as well. In 1954, Eastern Illinois State Teachers College became the focus of a huge national controversy surrounding a practice baby known as David North, who was only the second baby brought to the school.
1: Dr. Ruth Schmalhausen had been hired at the college's home economics department in 1950, and the school's first practice houses came into use in 1952. They had actually been authorized before World War II, but because of the war, they were delayed. When the school started looking for practice babies, Schmalhausen went to Dr. Roman Hremski of the Illinois State Child Welfare Division for help, However, Hrensky had some concerns about this program's potential impact on the children, and he refused to be involved in this. So, Schmalhausen
0: worked directly with families in the community. Eastern Illinois State Teachers College's first practice baby was Margaret Ann North, whose mother had been referred to the school by the Salvation Army home in Chicago. Margaret Ann's time as a practice baby seemed to have passed without raising any eyebrows. But in 1954, the college brought in David North, who had been born preterm and whose mother was unmarried. She had arranged for the school to take care of him temporarily so that she could return to work, also arranging for visitation rights and regular updates about his progress.
1: However, after an article about the program ran in a local newspaper, Haremsky was livid, both because of his concerns about it and because the school had done all this without his involvement. He was also concerned that there was no father figure involved in baby David's life. He ordered child welfare services to investigate.
0: During all this, David's pediatrician, Dr. William K. Height, commented, quote, the infant boy is in excellent physical condition. He has received physical care, which is far superior to that given in the best foundling homes and in most American homes. Furthermore, he is loved, which is the basic factor in the healthy developmental environment this child has benefited tremendously
1: from the good start he is receiving and will show it for years to come. On January 12th, 1954, this became a national news story, with most of the coverage about it being pretty negative. Reporting focused on the evolving fields of psychiatry and mental health and on concerns that women were abandoning their so-called natural role as wives and mothers in order to join the workforce. Time magazine ran an article about this with a photo of two students feeding David together with the caption, quote, David North and mothers, heaven knows how many neuroses.
0: Ultimately, Child Welfare Services found that since this had been arranged privately between David's mother and the school, and there was no adoption involved, it wasn't within their jurisdiction to intervene. Eventually, the Fuhrer died down, and David finished his time as a practice baby, and then a new practice baby, Amy North, arrived in the fall of 1954 with no public outcry.
1: The Fuhrer over David North was tied to an evolving understanding of how an infant's early life affected their later mental and emotional health and development, which is one part of why this practice ended. We will get more into that research after a sponsor break. As we noted earlier, opinions were divided about how best to teach practical mothercraft in American home economics schools. I mean, that that debate went all the way back to when this subject was first introduced. People questioned whether bringing babies into practice houses was the most practical or effective way to teach, and they questioned whether it was harmful or exploitive, Along with things like budgets and logistics and other practical issues, these concerns were some of the reasons why not every home economics program sought out babies for its practice homes.
0: Articles and primary source documents from these programs are full of anecdotes about the experience from the students' and teachers' points of view. And not all of them are positive. Some students talked about feeling overwhelmed or even terrified when they were expected to care for a baby. In articles about her novel The Irresistible Henry House, author Lisa Grinwald mentioned getting an email from one home economics graduate who quit her program saying, quote, you can't treat children this way.
1: But other anecdotes are more positive, and documents from the time students described the programs as beneficial to their education, everything from giving them practical mothering experience to strengthening their connection to their own mothers to the baby's presence in the practice house transforming other domestic work from a drudgery to a joy— A 1920 article in Successful Farming quotes an instructor from the University of Minnesota as observing that the program allowed students to do kind of a trial run of the often frazzled first few weeks of parenthood in a more controlled setting with some experienced supervision.
0: Anecdotally, the program could be beneficial for the babies as well. Archival documents from programs all over North America describe babies brought into the programs from institutions where they had been deprived. Babies who were malnourished with conditions like anemia and rickets, as we mentioned earlier, who just weren't very active or expressive and who seemed disconnected from the people around them. And then, after their time in the practice house, the babies were placed with adoptive families, now apparently happy and healthy. There are numerous reports of former practice babies being particularly sought after by families who wanted to adopt because they were considered to have been treated with the most up-to-date and sophisticated care.
1: In the 1950s, though, the general concerns that babies might be harmed by all this started to be reflected in some psychological research. Most notably, psychologist Henry Harlow did a series of experiments with baby rhesus monkeys in the late 1950s, He separated the monkeys from their mothers and then placed them in enclosures with sort of surrogate mothers, one of them made out of wire and the other covered in a soft terry cloth.
0: He made a lot of observations from this setup. Like, if a monkey was in an enclosure with both types of, quote, mothers, and Harlow put a scary wind-up toy in there, the monkey would go to the soft mother for comfort, not the wiry one. This was true even if the wire mother dispensed milk and the soft mother didn't. And the monkeys that had no soft mother in their enclosure behaved differently than the ones who did. They would scream or throw themselves on the floor if something scary happened, while monkeys with a terry cloth mother seemed more resilient and able to soothe
1: themselves. Harlow's work folded into a body of research that increasingly suggested that a person's experience in infancy, including love, comfort, security, and stability, affected them later on. Some of this research involved children who had been raised in institutional settings where they were truly deprived of care and affection. And it quickly became accepted that an infant whose early months were severely deprived would show signs like listlessness, poor sleep, and failure to maintain weight, even with a diet that seemed like it would be sufficient. So just a general failure to thrive. In older children, issues included an inability to make close friendships or other strong relationships, a lack of concentration, and a range of mood and behavioral disorders that came to be called attachment disorder.
0: Naturally, people started to wonder whether these conclusions could also apply to practice baby programs. In general, practice babies got plenty of care, but that was from multiple people rather than one primary caregiver with whom the baby could develop a strong attachment.
1: The first formal studies into this question actually started before Harlow's research with monkeys. In December of 1933, a paper was published in the Journal of Experimental Education detailing the welfare of practice babies at the Iowa State College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts Home Management Houses. Critics had questioned whether the children there could, quote, develop the necessary feeling of security under such circumstances, and the American Vocational Association had appointed a committee to investigate.
0: This committee carried out an eight-month study of the three children who had been practice babies at the college between 1928 and 1929, and then the four children who were there in 1929 to 1930. They compared them to other children who were within two weeks of the same age and the same sex and had been living in a boarding home or an orphanage. They also compared all of these children to control groups. These were children of the same age and sex who had been raised with their birth families in professional and non-professional households. The assessors conducted a range of physical, mental, and psychological assessments and had parents and caregivers fill out questionnaires.
1: They concluded that the practice babies, as a group, excelled in intelligence, motor development, language development, adaptive behavior, and personal social behavior. They performed slightly better than both control groups in their motor development and slightly better than the children from non-professional homes in their personal social behavior." They were slightly behind the control groups in language development and adaptive behavior, but they, quote, compared favorably in physical health and emotional stability.
0: The researchers only had seven children to evaluate, and some of the measurements involved were really pretty subjective. But overall, quote, an analysis of the investigators' notes gave no evidence that the home management house children suffered emotionally because of their apparently complex social situation. They compared very favorably with the control groups in emotional stability. They were less timid in the presence of strangers. They cried less during the medical examinations. There was less thumb-sucking and nail-biting among them. The home management house children were noticeably superior in physical health. No ailments of any kind were registered against them while the investigations were in
1: progress. More research was conducted starting in the 1950s. It's totally possible there was other research in the interim, but the 1950s research was what I found doing this. In 1955, Iowa State College and the Iowa Children's Home Society got a grant from the Elizabeth McCormick Memorial Fund to conduct a longitudinal study into how, quote, non-continuous mothering in home management houses affected babies' personalities— They studied about 40 babies who had lived in the home economics houses, following up with babies who had already been through the program and also doing baseline assessments of new babies as they came in. The
0: practice babies were Group A and had lived in the home management house for about 12 weeks during their first six months of life. Group B were infants of the same age and sex who had spent a comparable amount of time in foster care before being adopted. Group C were also the same age and sex and had lived with their birth families since being born.
1: Because they wanted to study only the effects of non-continuous mothering and they didn't want it to be influenced by other possible contributing factors, this team excluded children who had congenital disabilities or who had been born prematurely. And then they did a battery of tests when the babies were 6 months, 9 months, 12 months, 18 months, and 24 months old. In 1961, the team published Non-Continuous
0: Mothering in Infancy and Development in Later Childhood in the journal Child Development. Lead author D. Bruce Gardner referenced the ongoing longitudinal study as well as efforts to track down older children who had been previously living in these management homes. Of 62 children between the ages of nine and 17 who had been through the program, 29 were still living in Iowa. That was Group A. They compared those 29 children to children living in the same communities who were of the same age and sex but had been raised in their birth family, Group B. They also factored in things like socioeconomic status, parents' education, and the children's intelligence when making these comparisons.
1: Then the researchers administered a number of tests, including the California Test of Personality and the Iowa Every Pupil Test of Basic Skills, to these two groups of children, and they found little to no difference between the two groups. The difference between their, quote, personal adjustment scores was close enough to the threshold of significant that it was noted as something that should not be overlooked, but it also was something that they couldn't really say was conclusive. They also
0: had a separate psychologist conduct a study to evaluate whether the children's responses to frustrations were healthy or mature. In the 29 older children, the response from the child in group A was considered healthier 12 times and in group B, 17 times. So there was a slight difference in favor of the children who had been raised in their birth families, but again, not one that met the threshold of significance. The overall conclusion, quote, "...in none of these variables could differences be attributed to the factor of discontinuity of mothering in early childhood."
1: Uh, tracking down the final results of that longitudinal study proved to be a little trickier. I spent a lot of time going through old journals, um, looking for like the, a final comprehensive result. In 1964, Physical Status and Non-Continuous Mothering was published in the Journal of Home Economics, and that discussed only the children's physical measurements. That particular paper found no differences between the two groups uh, that could be attributed to their, their time in a, in a practice baby program. But other papers summarizing the work characterized it as showing no meaningful differences that would suggest that the non-continuous mothering was harmful to the babies.
0: So, again, these are small studies looking only at children who lived at Iowa State College, usually for 12 weeks, usually in their first six months of life. So you can't necessarily apply these findings to other programs, which may have kept children for longer or shorter periods or earlier or later in their life.
1: At the same time, all this research and the general concerns about whether these babies would have been better off in a home with just one mother were informed by perceptions of how families and motherhood should work, and specifically what women should be. The idea that children should live in a small family unit with one parent being their primary caregiver and that parent specifically being their mother was seen as the normal standard that families should aspire to, but that is definitely not universal. For example, research into societies that are more communal or are more likely to have large extended families with many family members all contributing to a baby's care, that research doesn't suggest that those other types of families cause attachment disorders.
0: As this research was happening, the same societal changes that were shifting the field of home economics were also leading to the end of practice houses and practice babies. In addition to changing expectations related to gender and work, ideas around parenting were also changing. There was a move away from the strictly measured, scheduled, very scientific idea of mothercraft to a more relaxed and intuitive model illustrated by Benjamin Spock's The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care, which was first published in 1948. Its first chapter, which is called Trust Yourself, starts off, quote, You know more than you think you do.
1: So we know very little about the adult lives of people who spent part of their infancy in a practice house. Because of confidentiality rules and sealed adoption records and attitudes about adoption in previous decades, it's possible that there are people living today who were in these practice baby programs and don't actually know about it. However, in the 1990s, the stories of two different former practice babies made headlines. One was Donald
0: Aldinger, whose reunion with at least four home ex students at Cedarcrest College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, was covered in the Morning Call in 1993. Aldinger had been declared abandoned shortly after his 1946 birth because his mother was incarcerated for vagrancy at the time. He was known as Donnie at the Cedarcrest practice house. Aldinger was placed with a foster family at the age of 13 months and raised on a dairy farm with many, many other foster children who came and went. Aldinger was there until the age of 17. After meeting some of his practice mothers, he was quoted as saying, for the first time in my life, I feel like everybody else who had a family.
1: Articles about his experience frame this as like having reconnected with somebody in a generally positive experience. Shirley Kirkman's story, published in Oregon in 1999, is almost the opposite. Kirkman had been a practice baby in the 1930s at Oregon State College before being adopted. She described this home as a lonely one, with her mother, quote, chilly, and her father addicted to alcohol. In terms of her time in the practice house, she was quoted as saying, quote, I'm sure I got excellent care. That's not the hurtful part. It's that I was used. Kirkman had 34 students involved in her care, and she described her experiences as an infant as leaving her unable to love and, quote, dead inside.
0: Uh, In addition to the book The Irresistible Henry House, which we mentioned earlier, there's another work of fiction about this uh, that's related, which is Carol Shields' The Republic of Love. And if you're still interested in more, there is also a play which is called Borrowed Babies, and that was written by Jennifer Blackmer.
1: Uh, in a weird twist of Googling, um, I learned about this play by trying to figure out whether my grandmother's home ec program had a practice house, which it did. I don't know if it did while she was uh, in school there um, because the article that I found talking about the practice house there was from the the 40s and she graduated in 1939. Um, and the <laughs> uh, that uh, that college had put on um a performance of this show and like that was how i i wound up finding it was <laughs> um, by about them by coincidence doing a a performance of this show so that is the practice babies i uh i a lot of articles like just popular articles not necessarily academic articles that have been written about it in the last 10 years have a just a horrified tone and describe it with words like dystopian um and there's a lot of uh, reason to be upset about uh, conditions during a lot of this period. Like so many of these children were living in experiences that that were truly deprived. and that there's so many stories of um people being forced into adoption because they were not married. Um and uh, all of that, to me, is a lot more troubling than the 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 practice house component of it. Uh, anyway, I also have listener mail. Fabulous. This listener mail is from Jess. Jess says, hi, Holly and Tracy. Thank you for doing an episode about bees and beekeeping. I'm headed into my second season of beekeeping, and I'm up to four hives this year, all of which are the Langstroth type. I'm working with a couple of local farmers to place hives as the years go on to better help their crops out. I'm anticipating getting upwards of 100 pounds of honey this year once we all have offices to go to again. I'll have to send you some honey. I did have one possible correction in relation to the use of smokers in hives. While they may have been intended to disperse the bees initially, it's not that effective in doing so. Primarily, using smoke in hives interrupts their ability to communicate, since they use pheromones to do that. Basically, if one bee is anxious about a keeper being in the hive, it prevents that from spreading through the hive, keeping the bees calm and easy to work with and around. I laughed about the privacy wall the bees made, but it is is possible that they may have done that. Bees create a product called propolis, which is basically bee glue. It is a sticky water-resistant residue that bees can and do coat the inside of their hive with to help prevent water from getting in. Thanks again for keeping me entertained. I've attached some pictures and a video of dropping a new hive this year after a split, which is the manual version of a swarm. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much for sending this note, Jess. One of the things that I did not get into detail about in that episode was that while today uh, most of the um, things that are used in smokers are not considered to be harmful to bees and it does have a pacifying effect, um, earlier in history, some of the things that people have burned when dealing with bees um, have been things that were a lot more harmful. Um, and in some cases, were uh, were things that, when burned, would like really irritate or even kill the bees, which is, of course, not done today. Um, and as i as I was trying to <laughs> uh, to like narrow down the immense history of beekeeping, that was one of the things that I did not really uh, get into as much. I could not specifically say whether uh, when I was talking about using smoke to drive the bees out, Um, whether that was correct or not, because I rented that textbook and it has gone back. It is no longer something I can go back to to check details (laughs) without renting it again. Um, If physical libraries were open, I could have gotten a physical copy from uh, from a fancy university library, but I could not. Anyway, so, uh, that is a little tidbit about the smoking and the bees. Um, If you'd like to write to us, whether it's just for basic listener mail or if if you're interested in having a, a question in a, in a Q&A episode that we're planning in the relatively near future, send us a note. We're at HistoryPodcasts at iHeartRadio.com. And then we're also all over social media at Mist in History. That is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you like to get podcasts.